there is power in Christ and in the gospel to rid all of those who will come to him from the controlling, dominating, enslaving power of sin to freedom. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What does God think about those who are outside of Christ? How does He think about you? Hi there, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom is continuing in his current series with part eight of This Is Your Life. Last time, we looked at three powerful forces that influence all spiritual journeys. And today, Tom will examine God's own perspective of you. And as you'll find out, God's perspective of you might not be as encouraging as you might hope. But if you are in Christ, His view of you is far beyond what you could ever have hoped for. With that in mind, you must come to terms with how you are described in the Word of God. What are those terms? And are you willing to accept His definition of you? Keep all that in mind, and let's join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Listen to the Apostle Peter as he describes false teachers. 2 Peter chapter 2, he says in verse 2, they will follow their sensuality. Down in verse 10, he says, they indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. Remember, he's talking about false teachers here who appear holy and religious. Verse 13, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They don't even wait to party for darkness to cover their sin. They're happy to do it during the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. Peter says, listen, don't you believe the phony face. I don't care how holy they act, I don't care what words they use, if they're outside of Christ, this is what they're like. Verse 18 of the same chapter, they speak out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. Verse 19, they promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. Listen, understand, this is what religious life without Jesus Christ is like. I don't care what it looks like on the outside. And Paul is a perfect example. I just read you from Philippians 3 what he looked like on the outside. To everyone else, he looked blameless. Let me show you what Paul said about what was going on in his heart. Turn to Romans chapter 7. This is before his conversion, the first part of Romans 7. Listen to how he describes himself inside. Verse 5, Romans 7. For while we were in the flesh, we, notice Paul's including himself here, that is while we were dead to God, while we had our corrupt nature, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. You say, wait a minute, Paul. You... Yes, me. And he goes on to describe how this happened. Verse 7. I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about 
coveting, there's our word lust, to crave, if the law had not said, you shall not covet, you shall not sinfully crave. But what happened? Verse 8, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me. Paul says, let me tell you what was going on in my heart. Here it is. Coveting of every sort. I may have looked great on the outside, but what was going on in my heart was craving everything you can imagine. Because you see, religion without regeneration cannot control the flesh. Now there are powerful lessons here for us. Every culture as a whole, listen carefully to me, every culture as a whole lives in the cravings of the flesh no matter what it may look like on the outside. We live in Texas, and I'm happy to live in Texas. I prefer to live in Texas over California. Texans appear on the surface to be a whole lot more moral than Californians. Christians don't believe it. It's a facade. It's a charade. According to the Word of God, it's not true. Here's another misperception. The older we get the more sentimental we become about the past. What about those good old days when everyone was moral and upstanding? Those times never existed except in your imagination. Okay, it didn't happen. Some cultures and some time periods are better at hiding their true nature, but the Victorian era was not a Christian era. They were more private and hidden with their sins, which we can be grateful for, but it was just as much a reality. What's true of cultures is also true of individuals. There is not a single person who, apart from Christ, doesn't live in the cravings of his flesh. This is true of the low-lifers in the culture who lead the parade toward depravity, those who are the headliners on all the tabloids you see in the grocery store lines, you know, the Britney Spears or the Howard Stearns. It's true of them, but it is equally true of the most upstanding, outwardly moral and righteous people you can think of who are not Christians. It is true of the religious and of the religious teachers without exception. Along this line, let me say to you parents, let me give you a little warning. Don't you think for a moment that you are protecting your children from the lusts of the flesh by putting them in a Christian school or by homeschooling them? If they are not Christians, I can guarantee you both biblically and experientially that you are not sheltering them from the lusts of the flesh. Unbelievers will find a way, even in the best environment, to fulfill the cravings of their fallenness. Wherever a person is without Christ, whether you're talking about the most externally righteous-looking one, the Pope, or whether you're talking about the lowest drunk in the gutter, the powerful cravings of the heart dominate and control that person. That's what Paul says. Paul takes it another step back in Ephesians 2. Notice what he says in verse 3. We not only lived with these strong cravings or desires, we actually carried them out. We didn't just nurse and coddle these desires inside. We acted on them. We indulged them, is the word he used. 
Notice verse three. Indulging or doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now the word desires here is a different Greek word than the word lust. It means will. Literally, the Greek says this. Let me translate it for you. This is how it literally reads in the Greek text. Doing the wills of the flesh and the thoughts. Doing the wills of the flesh and the thoughts. Now, by using the plural wills, Paul is pointing out that there are these two different wills that we tend to obey. There are these two different paths, if you will, the lusts of the flesh take. It can take the path of the will of the flesh, or it can take the path of the will of the thoughts. Let's look at these two different paths. We did, Paul says, we indulged what the flesh wanted, what the flesh willed. Now, what does he mean here? I can't be dogmatic about this, but it seems to me that Paul is using the same Greek word, the word sarx, translated flesh here in verse 3, in two different senses in one verse. If he's not doing this, then he's just repeating himself, which doesn't seem to make much sense to me. If I'm right, then the first time the word flesh appears, the lusts of the flesh, it's more general. It's talking about the lusts of our entire corrupt human nature. But the second time the word flesh appears, he's focusing on the other major way this word is used, and that is in reference to the material man, to the body. It's the opposite of the mind and the thoughts. We obeyed our bodies, is what Paul is saying. We indulged the will of our bodies, what they wanted. Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. Paul is thinking here of hunger, thirst, the desire for sleep, the desire for pleasure, the desire for happiness, the desire for contentment, for sex, the desire to attract and be attractive. These things, which in and of themselves are right and good, suddenly take control and they become imperious, in, that is, little emperors, in their demands. They begin to assert themselves and drive us. These good desires that were given us by God, instead of being our slaves, become our masters. And we do the will of the body. What it demands, we say, yes, sir, and we obey. There's another path that the lusts of the flesh take, not only obeying the will of the body, but notice the will of the mind or the will of the thoughts, literally. Whatever our thoughts willed or wanted, we did. Now here, he's not talking about the sins connected to the body specifically, but he's talking about the sins that tend to control and dominate our thinking, our thoughts, our minds. At the very lowest level are sins like jealousy and envy, pride, anger, bitterness. Those are the sins of the mind, of the thoughts. But there are also sins of the thoughts that are at a little bit higher level and more socially acceptable level. Sins like selfish ambition, the desire to get wealthy, the desire for position, for power, for influence, for success. And at the highest level, the sins of the thoughts can manifest themselves as a sinful desire for knowledge or philosophy or the arts. 
All of these things, whether it's the lowest level, whether it's a a socially acceptable level, or even at the highest level, all of these desires of the thoughts and mind dominate and control unbelievers. And sometimes it's at all levels. One of the perfect illustrations of this, one of the most troubling illustrations I've ever read is the illustration of a man you probably heard about in school, a 19th century Irish writer called Oscar Wilde. In his time, Oscar Wilde won high awards in literature, but his life was a tragic one that was absolutely lost in the pursuit of the will of the body and the will of his thoughts. Listen to how he described it himself in his book, De Profundis. Wilde writes, the gods had given me almost everything, but I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went to the depths in search for new sensation. What the paradox was to me in the sphere of thought, perversity became to me in the sphere of passion. I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber, one has someday to cry aloud from the housetop. I cease to be lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul, and I did not know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me, I ended in horrible disgrace. While Oscar Wilde was in prison for the very things he writes about here, he saw them as enslaving, and he wrote those profound words about his condition. But tragically, as soon as he left prison, after two years, he returned to the very same sins that he describes here. He was enslaved by the will of the flesh and the will of the thoughts. You and I, while our sins and temptations may have been different than Oscar Wilde's, we had the very same relationship to those cravings. We lived in them. We conducted our lives in them. We returned to them again and again. We indulged them. We did them. We acted them out. But there is in verse 3 a wonderful word. The first glimpse we get of grace. Look at verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Here's hope. Hope because there is power in Christ and in the gospel to rid all of those who will come to him from the controlling, dominating, enslaving power of sin to free them. While I am not what I want to be, By God's grace, I am not what I used to be. We're looking at what we were in these first three verses. We've seen the true condition, the root cause, the practical result. The final element of what we were is found at the very end of verse 3. And here we get God's perspective of us. God's perspective of us. Notice the end of verse 3. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. 
Don't forget the subject of the sentence. Go back to the beginning of verse 3. We all. This also was true of every person without exception. And just in case we missed it, notice how Paul ends verse 3. Even as the rest. As the rest of humanity. This was true of us. This was our circumstance just as it was everyone else's. This was God's perspective of absolutely every human being. doesn't matter whether you felt this way or not. This was God's perspective of you before Christ. We were by nature. That's an interesting expression and a difficult one to interpret. It's used several different ways in the New Testament. It can mean by birth. That would mean that we were children of wrath simply by being born. And that is possible. But whenever the Bible speaks of God's wrath against individuals, it is always, without exception, because of their sins. So the biblical order is personal acts of sin followed by wrath. Ephesians 5, 6 is a perfect example of that. Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these sins I've just mentioned, because of these sins, the wrath of God comes. We have personal guilt from Adam's sin, but it appears biblically that the wrath of God comes because of our own sin. So by nature here, Paul probably means by our natural condition, apart from God's regenerating grace. We could say naturally. We were by nature or naturally children of wrath. What does that mean? Well, it's a Hebrew way of saying it. It means worthy of or deserving of death. By nature, we were not children of God. We were children of God's wrath. Harold Honer says, unbelievers have a closer relationship to God's wrath than they do to God himself. Don't misunderstand God's wrath. When we think of wrath, we think of sinful anger. God's wrath is not vindictive, it's not unrighteous revenge, it is not a sinful outburst of anger. Instead, it is a settled indignation against sin that must punish it. And it's not mutually exclusive with love, by the way. The same God who had his wrath on us, according to verse 3, loved us, according to verse 4, and sought us out. So wrath and love are not mutually exclusive. Wrath is God's settled indignation against our sin. There's so many places where this is taught in Scripture. Let me just give you two of them. John chapter 3, verse 36. At the end of that wonderful chapter with John three sixteen, John ends this way, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him like a stain you can't get rid of, like a cloud you can't get out from under. The wrath of God remains on those who do not believe. In Romans chapter 2, Paul puts it like this. He says, verse 5, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath. You are stockpiling wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You see, as sinners, you know what we tend to think? We tend to think, well, you know, God hasn't done anything yet. Maybe that means I'm okay. Maybe that means he's actually okay with how I'm living and what I'm doing. That's so foolish. Paul says, listen, 
If you are not repentant, if you have not come to faith in Christ, then every moment you live, you are stockpiling wrath, and there will come a day when God will pour it out. This is the reality under which we lived. And if you think Christ isn't a part of that wrath, if you think Christ is just all love and he's trying to persuade the Father to accept sinners who haven't repented, then understand that Revelation tells us that Jesus Christ himself will execute the wrath. Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, those alive at the end will say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And in Revelation 19, Jesus is pictured in this powerful picture of his treading out the winepress of the wrath of God. It's as if Jesus is stamping out the grapes, and out of that vat pours the wrath of God. The most common word picture of God's wrath in the Bible is fire. It's pictured as a fire that absolutely consumes everything in its path. And that, folks, is what you and I could expect from God by nature. But thank God, it's no longer true. I love what Paul says in Romans 5, 9. Having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, we wait for his Son from heaven, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, turn one last time to, to Ephesians 2. Why is this text here? Remember Paul's purpose in reminding, of, reminding us of all that used to be true of us? Remember that the first three verses we've examined together are the pitch black setting on which God can lay the diamond of God's sovereign grace so that it looks more beautiful because of the background on which it's laid. What Paul wants in these first three verses is to us to see that we have absolutely no hope. There is nothing we could have done about our condition. Its root cause are the results. We were objects destined for God's wrath That's where we were. God intends this picture to destroy all hope outside of Jesus Christ. Everything in me, as I prayed this morning, cries out for God to punish me and to reject me. It's only everything in Christ that calls out for him to accept me. All we can do is throw ourselves on God's mercy. You remember how Jesus described it in the Beatitudes? Matthew chapter 5, he says... Blessed are the beggars in spirit. Those who come to God and say, God, I have nothing. I have absolutely nothing to offer you. I have no merits. I have no works. I have no goodness. I have nothing you want. All I can do is beg. Please give me mercy. Give me grace. Give me a new heart. Give me a new life. It's like the publican. You remember the story Jesus tells? He shows up at the temple at the time of the sacrifice And he doesn't even lift up his eyes, but instead with his head bowed, he beats on his chest and he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's what Paul wants us to see was our only hope. Peter O'Brien was right. 
only the person who understands something of the greatness of his sin and of God's wrath will be mastered by the greatness of his mercy. Paul thought it was important for us to remember who we were, what we were. That's all the bad news. Verse 4 begins the good news in those two amazing words, but God. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part eight of his current series titled, This Is Your Life. Join us next time for part nine as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Thank you.